Hi, welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Creston. And I'm Coda. And today we're going to talk about the Once line of products that 37 Signals just launched, as well as their first product under this banner, uh, Campfire. But before we get into that, we usually do the weekend review. So I'll go ahead and start. Uh, in terms of this week, my course is open for students tomorrow. So we're recording this, happen to be recording this on Sunday. So the course opens up on Monday with the first module and I'll be released over the next eight weeks. So I had to do a ton of work closing out the course because the, the you know, the shopping cart as it were closed on Thursday, but there's still a lot of final emails that need to go out, you know, saying, hey, this is the last chance to get in the course if you want to do it and things of that nature. So I've been super busy with that and super busy getting things ready. And I've spent a ton of time preparing the database to send to people. And I'm kicking myself that I should have just made this a program that I could deliver to them because delivering, essentially it's a two terabyte database. And I'm also offering a 200 gigabyte database. That's a substantial amount of data to transfer. But I found some inexpensive ways to do it. So basically the first thing I'm doing is I'm using Z standard to compress it as much as possible, which is a, it's like gzip, but much better. <laughs> and I think Facebook designed it. So I'm, it's Z, STD is basically the acronym for it. Mm. But interesting. I'm going to be using. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, do you know how it compares to like uh, LRZIP? LRZIP. Or... I'm not familiar yeah. with LRZIP. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the one that I, I like. It's It focuses on basically on large file compression. Oh, okay. Yep. All right. Well. Maybe I should have evaluated that, but <laughs> needless to say, this is kind of what I did. So the 200 gigabyte shrunk down to about 40 gigabytes. So what I did is I just got, tried to find the cheapest place with the most amount of free bandwidth or the cheapest bandwidth. And that happened to be Hetzner, so I, which is a hosting provider. So I got a server in Europe and a server in the US and set up SFTP on it and said, okay, here you go, guys. You can just download it from here. Um, that was super cheaper. That was super cheap compared to any other place I I've uh, seen or try. I'm sure there's probably cheaper, of course, but. I, I assume your listeners would not have liked it if you insisted on using like torrents, right? Well, what does it matter? It's just test data. <laughs> so I probably, <laughs> probably could have, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, but the 200, excuse me, the two terabyte, so that was for the smaller database. That's how we did that. But the two terabyte goes down to 400 gigabytes, which they didn't have. I mean, I probably could use their block storage or whatnot. And I initially tried using this before, but I had problems, but I finally figured out what the problem was. But Cloudflare's S3 alternative, they call R2. I don't know why, but they do not charge for um, egress fees. So I said, all right, I'll just stick it on there. I'll pay, you know, for the 400 gigabytes. 
and as many people presumably can download it as possible. The only, yeah, the only issue it does require splitting up the files into five gigabyte chunks. So it basically is 78 chunks. So it's, it's definitely a little bit of a nuisance to deal with, but it's kind of been done. So yeah, this was a long discussion, but I guess I'm just giving you an update and the, you know, the listeners an update as to what uh, I've been doing this week is spending a lot more time on prepping databases than I expected. Did you provide like a script or something to automatically kind of download and merge these together? Or I didn't how? have an effort, excuse me, the time to do that, right. but I did yep. validate these are the commands, um, you know, okay. so you got to down, like you got to download it, yep. concatenate together. This is me because people may be using Macs or Linux or Windows. I really don't know what they're right. using, but That's this true. is what worked yeah. for me on Linux. So I'll see if anyone runs into issues. I mean, basically the easiest one to deal with, of course, is the smaller database because you just SFTP it down. It's in a tar file that gets extracted to actually a directory format. And then you can do a direct restore from there. So that's the easiest to work with. Mm. Um, yeah, the the two terabyte is, yeah, a challenge. So yeah, yeah, no, that's. So I definitely, like I said, I'm kicking myself. I should have just delivered. Hey, here's the script. Build as big a one as you want. You know. But I see. I built mine to two terabytes, and that's what I will record. But yeah. Well, that was a long, long-winded thing for me. What about you? What, what have you been up to? Yeah, so um, we moved our office actually. So we, yesterday, uh, which was Saturday, we got uh, five trucks and we had ten people come. And you know, five the movers brought ten people and they had yeah, these five yeah. gigantic trucks. And I don't know. We started at eight or eight thirty in the morning and then went till I don't know, like four in the afternoon, just, you know, is, but the new space looks great. We have, uh, we have like a lot more robot testing space, which is always fun. And, you know, the, when you enter the very first thing you see is we have this curved wall and I'm very proud of this curved wall because it's the, it's, it was the piece that I contributed to the design. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah, is this but, a place that your organization? been kind of pre-designed yeah so we basically okay. had uh there was a uh auto garage that we basically completely gutted and renovated oh, okay. and then now we're mm -hmm. so you know essentially before we were in an office building and we had like you know basically a good chunk of a of a floor yep um, and we had like a bunch of you know like satellite areas as well for our for our Boston office at least and then um we basically moved that to this we, we were on the second floor which is horrendous for and we have these robots that are 500 kilograms they're driving around and causing the whole building to shake um what? So, oh my gosh yep so and there was a Russian school of math right below us so I'm sure they're glad to see us leave but uh you know so we're now on basically there's just one story thing that's a lot closer to the center of Boston than, than before, which is nice as well. And then, um, yeah, so we're, and you know, I'm more 
we need to be able to kind of get up and running on Monday. So we basically pushed all the boxes Lord. to one side of the test lab and we like put down all these like markings on the floors and like set up all the cameras and everything and the the you know VPN system there and, and all this stuff and so we should be should be good to go on Monday to start driving the robots around while everyone kind of carefully works around them. But um, yeah, and then but actually at the bottom of the curb wall, part of why I'm excited about it is we're adding an LED strip and some sensors, some you know basically to look at uh, like laser sensor data for where people are walking around. And we're, okay. So we're going to have the LEDs kind of light up where you where you walk around and, and things like that. So it's, you know, the little things like that that I'm pretty excited about. Just, you know, just the, yeah. But, cool. Um, Out of curiosity, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned a 500 kilogram robot. Out of curiosity, mm -hmm. what is the majority of the weight with something like that? Um, yeah, uh, there are a few different things. Um, so a lot of it's made out of steel so that's part of yeah. the problem but yeah. uh for that machine in particular uh so that you know basically what we do is we provide software for yeah. yeah these robots so you know these are machines built by other companies right um and they have so but when presumably you're built, taking a delivery of something they're sending to you and you write the software for it or is that uh no i mean we we basically sell them controllers and things like that. So we basically oh, okay. provide them the software, but we needed to have a version of their thing here. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, um, right, So right. we have like three of the 500 kilogram robots just kind of roaming around our lab. And we have, you know, a bunch of other robots there. But um, the that machine in particular um, had a lot of pretty unique um, needs. So it... Uh, you know, like it had to like go through like truck yard, for example. Um, so it had to be able to handle things where it's, you know, a little bit uneven terrain. Um, and it has some like omnidirectional capabilities too, uh, meaning it can drive sideways as well as forward and backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and then also has this gigantic robot arm on it. And the problem was when that was originally manufactured, I think about four years ago, five years ago, um, there weren't DC, uh, you know, so there's a class of robot arms called cobots. So these are robot arms that are safe to operate. You know, they're certified to be safe to operate in human spaces. So basically, if they hit you, they will stop. Mm -hmm. um, versus like a lot of these other industrial robots you see, if they hit you, they will just keep going and, you know, yeah, you yeah. don't really want to be in that situation. But um, so these cobots, they, they didn't have cobots that had DC power uh, or yeah, DC robot controllers. So everything was AC, you know, it was, it would take in an AC input. So it was, the assumption was you plug it into a wall effectively yeah, and yeah. then use it that way. Um, so what they were doing was they had these big DC batteries and then they had this giant converter to go from DC to AC. Yeah. And okay. then they would plug that into this giant controller that was meant to be the standalone thing. So, you know, all of that, plus all the electronics that kind of support that, having this giant arm and then this, you know, steel base 
with you know and that that kind of adds up unfortunately so it's and then as you add more things to it you probably need a heavier base to prevent it from tipping over or something like that yeah i mean that's true too i don't think that was the consideration there i think it just happened to be that when they designed it just they you know it was almost over designed in a way where it's to the point where it's it's very heavy okay. um we have <laughs> Yeah, we have like another robot that we're working on that does a lot of the same kinds of, you know, has similar specs in terms of uh, being able to drive, you know, faster speeds and has like a robot arm on it and can do all these things. And but because kind of the way that technology has advanced, it's a fifth of the weight. So, you know, it's 100 kilograms versus 500, which is a lot more manageable. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, okay. No, sorry. I, I was just, I, Took that nugget, just wanted to ask a little bit more. No, 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 that's, that's good. Yeah. So it's been, you know, yeah, I, I think these robots, it's interesting because we also, um, are dealing with, uh, we're working on one right now. One of our customers has a robot that's about the size of a car. So I actually don't know how much that weighs, but it's, it's I'm sure it's a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, car. it's yeah. very big. Um, so it's, you know, probably a couple tons and, uh, we do not have one of those in our office. That was, you know, I feel like that would be such a pain to bring to the, you know, overseas, but yeah. Yep. All right. Well, t but today, you know, we're talking about software. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so we're talking about, um, so 37 signals announced, I don't know if it was the end of the year. It was very recently their once line of products. So it, the from their website, the adage is basically you, reason why it's called once is you pay for it once and you own it forever. Should we share our screen here? Um, sure. I can, I can go ahead here. Okay. Yeah. Yep. If, if you're good, go ahead. Yep. So if you scroll down, it has the... Uh, the bullet points. Yeah. So pay one time, own forever. Uh, we write the code, you get to see it. So the other benefit is that you actually get the source code mm -hmm. of these products. Uh, we give you the software, you get to host it. So basically they don't run it for you. Uh, and then simple, straightforward, not enterprisey, and bloated. So basically it's a simple, basic app. They haven't added a lot of features to it uh, for one fixed price once. Now, as some caveats to add to that, what I've seen somewhere is that basically they will update it, but it's you pay per version. So in other words, this is, you know, quote unquote version one of campfire in mm -hmm. its current state. And you'll continue to get that as, as long as you want. Um, but if you see, it says free updates for any one X version. So as long as they keep supporting the one X version, you'll keep getting updates, but if they come out with the version two, presumably that would require more payment to do it. Yep. Yeah, no, um, it's, this is interesting to kind of see the, you know, it's, they also mentioned that they write the code and we get to see it. So that almost means open source, right? I mean, it's... 
Well, they're delivering. I don't know if open source is the right term for it because I don't know if they want to show it to everyone. But basically, if well, you, well, it, well, well, all right, let me rephrase yeah. it. It is open source in that the customers get to see it. Right. I don't right. think, I don't know if I looked at the licensing, if you could like just put it out on the internet. Yeah. But, but it is open in the sense that the customer can see it. Yeah. yeah. That that would be kind of the free part of you yeah. know, FOSS software, right? Um, yeah. So it's, I think it's, yeah, I don't know. These are kind of the nuances that are a little confusing, but. And full disclosure, um, I did purchase uh, Campfire. So I did make a purchase of it. Interesting. And I just thought it was interesting, just kind of wanted to discuss discuss it in the show because it feels like it harkens back to, okay, well, I mean, and they talk about it, you know, it's what used to be done. Basically, you just bought a software licenses, software license and you use the product. There's a, um, there's a, another product that's kind of similar uh, that came out fairly recently um, is in a totally different space. But have you heard of uh, Plasticity? It's a CAD software using, yeah, let me show you this. Um, sort of, you know, it's a little a little different, but, you know, it's, it's basically uh, the idea is to kind of bridge the gap between parametric modeling software and more uh, solid, uh, what is that? Uh, kind of like Blender, where you have the the uh, shoot, you know the 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 vert vertice like face based three D modeling, and and interestingly, this actually has kind of a similar um, approach where they basically include updates for twelve months, um, and so you basically buy this license, you have it forever. Um, so I think we're seeing, and then there was also a um, music composition software. Um, let's see, what was it called? Uh, I, you know, I don't remember what what it was called. But there's a alternative to um, like Ableton, um, which is sort of the super common. Very, very popular. Uh, oh, Bitwig. That's right. Bitwig, Bitwig? Studio. Hmm? Yeah. Bitwig Studio is this uh, other DAW that's, you know, basically made by the people who made Ableton, which is the kind of the most popular one. This actually has kind of a similar licensing model where you purchase a version and then I think it includes updates for about a year. Um, but of course, with these two things, the big thing that it's missing is this source code, source yeah. code component. Yeah. So that's that's and, kind of the really unique thing I think about what Campfires uh, or what Once is doing here. And you know what they sell. You know they essentially DHH created you know the first version of the Rails Ruby on Rails framework. And Ruby is an interpreted language. Therefore, if you're going to re release that source code to someone, they're going to be able to see all this. You know, you can't obfuscate the source code. So I think mm -hmm. the reason it's there is because they were in that box to begin with. You know I what see. I mean? Yep. Yeah. That so, makes, so 
by not hosting it themselves, they are, you know, that was already something that was a little bit inevitable. So they felt like they might as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, because as soon as you, mm -hmm. as soon as they deliver the software, you can get access to the source code. Right. So they turn around and they make it a, you know, a selling point type mm -hmm. thing. That makes sense. How do you feel like it has performed? You know, have you gotten a chance to use it much? Oh yeah. So mm -hmm. my thought was I was actually going to use this for the community for my course. Um, because I was tracking, oh, how much would it costs based upon how many students I think I'm going to have. And everyone universally preferred when I was asking the early adopters of the course where, whether they would want something like Slack or Discord or something else, they were saying Slack. But I was looking at per user costs for Slack and I was like, I don't know about this. Yep. <laughs> Where's this? I could buy it. Because I do have an alternative reason for wanting to talk about this because I'm actually thinking about potentially a product like this. We can get to that a little bit later. So that was one reason I was interested in taking a look at this. And then secondly, I was like, well, I could just, you know, pay $300 once and then I could use this as much as I want with however many students I end up getting in the course. Because I didn't know how many total students I would have in the course by the time um, when I made the purchase for it. So, yeah, that was that was my plan to use it for, for that purpose. But what I ended up doing is I was using webinars to basically spread the word that I was that I have this course. So I set up a series of three webinars and I basically used this as the communication mechanism with uh, some of my VAs as the webinars were going on. Like they would check the sound, they would get, send me messages while the webinar was going on or whatnot. And I mean, it works fine. It is, it's just like it says, it's super, super simple group chat, so. Does it have support for like embedding videos and things as well and sort of uploading files or is that? Uh, you can do images. I don't know if you can do videos. I haven't tried that yeah. or, or, or looked at that, you know, particular feature right. set. Yeah. Because it's really at, at its essence just chatting with someone and then putting emotes on <laughs> for particular things. I mean, that's, I would say, 90% of what people use Slack for and whatnot. So, and so you said you you purchased this, but have you? How do you access the source code? Is that something that they just kind of send with? Yeah, I think there was a download link or something. I clicked to get it, mm -hmm. so it was you know it was just super convenient to be yeah. able to do it. I mean, they give you one URL, excuse me, one URL that you basically paste into the server you want to install the software on, and it goes and pulls down, uh, you know, yeah. the Docker. Essentially, it's in a Docker container in stalls Docker if it's not present on the server and then sets up the Docker container and gets it up and running. So it just basically, you know, it uses like curl to download the script and pipes it exactly. into like a shell or something like that, right? And then you... Yeah. It yep. downloads. There's a little program I was looking at. It. I think it might be written in some language like Go or Rust or something. I can't remember what which one it was. And then from there, it just asks you a series of questions that then configures it for you so interesting um do they kind of specify you know because i think some of these things can be you know if you don't really know what you're doing getting 
something like this up and running on a publicly accessible server can be tricky, right? Do they also kind of provide some guidance as to what, what they recommend for, for some of these things? Or is it just kind of... I didn't... See, I saw zero guidance. Okay. But... Yeah. Yeah, because I know sometimes some of these things kind of... <laughs> and that has to be public, publicly accessible usually. But, I mean, it's mm -hmm. whomever is installing it can make that decision on where they put it. I needed right. mine publicly installable in a public mm -hmm. location because of who I was going to have using it. And I actually said it, it's actually an entirely different... Um, well... I went with an entirely different hosting platform. Like all my stuff is hosted on AWS. And yep. for this, I said, eh, I'm just going to put it on the digital ocean droplet. So it's an entirely different data center from <laughs> everything else. Because uh -huh. it was like, if anything happens there, who cares? You know? Right. And it, the, again, the chat at the time was just going to be people talking about the course. No biggie. If, you know, that gets out. Oh, no. You know, or me chatting with you know, some of my VAs during a webinar, you know, mm -hmm. that's not mission critical, inf mission critical information. Interesting. Yeah. So it's kind of like going back, you know, it's, I think back, you know, software companies used to, didn't have to deal with operations. They just wrote software and they delivered the software and it was up to the customer to deal with, have their IT departments and deal with, you know, operating the software and installing it and patching, you know, patching the operating system and, and everything. Yeah. I, you know, actually one thing that kind of comes to mind because, you know, it, doing that kind of thing, there was also a, in a lot of cases, a pretty high uh, technical support cost and, you know, not that becoming a software as a service removes that, but, well, I can imagine. it's the software vendor that takes on that responsibility of operations. Right. It's basically shifting the operational responsibility back from the people writing the software to the people running the software. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know if people are ready for that in droves, or it may be more ac applicable to say, I think it really depends on which software you do it with. Like, for example, this, I don't know, we'll see how it goes, but it may just be people who are kind of in a techie environment to begin with, and they're okay setting up a Docker container on a server, you know. The the other interesting thing about this is the pricing, right? You know, because I think this was, we're looking at, what, $300 for this? Yep. And yep. that's it. Yep. And... Most of, you know, I think our, our I shouldn't give numbers, but, you know, our, our Slack, uh, you know, went back before we got acquired, Slack for us cost, you know, you know well over, you know, I think a couple thousand dollars uh, a year, right? And it was something along the, that range, if not higher. Um, so one thing that'll be kind of interesting is... So the scalability of this kind of model and presumably one of the things that's a little bit different is because it's a one-time purchase and everyone understands it's a one-time purchase 
you don't necessarily need the same rate of innovation or updates as a you know SaaS uh, project. Yeah, yeah I mean, because like with SaaS, every month you're expecting. Well, I don't know. I mean, basically, you do want it to always work. So there, right. there is that aspects of paying a fee that hey, we're paying your software to do this, but then the added bonus is hey, you should be get new new innovative features periodically. Yeah, that's kind of like yeah. the unspoken promise or even explicit promise of software as a service. Yeah, you're paying for the the continuous updates that that happen. Um, yeah, the the other benefit is that you know this can support. You know, engineering gets really, really complex the more data, you know, of course, the more data you have in the database and having a, again, that term multi-tenant application where you have all your customers on different server nodes. The advantage of this is that a server is dedicated to one customer. So one thing that is kind of interesting about that, though, is there are plenty of applications where you know, they have a cloud version of it, and then they also have a uh, enterprise version that you download locally and, you know, you manage on yep. your own sort of, I mean, with extensive support, you know, you have a service contract and, and do it that way. Um, but typically we associate that with very, very large installations only, right? I mean, I think typically you're talking about cases where, you know, you have... 200 plus users at least um, to several, you know, or at least that's, and yeah. Um, and then you might start looking at something like that um, versus in this case, it's that same kind of, you know, it, in a way it just it's pushes it down lower. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bridging that gap a little bit, which is a little different. What do you think of like GitLab? You know, GitLab also kind of has a, it's a different model, of course, but it's, um, you know, the open source, but they host, they do have basically a, a hosted version of it. So you can. I haven't looked at their hosted version. I mean, I, I've always yeah. used GitHub, so I haven't explored GitLab significantly. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the same idea as GitHub, but. You know, you can also download it or um, I think but they also what's have... their pricing for a downloaded? I mean, it's, well, they have so a free it's... version, right? So, yeah, um, but is that their cloud or is it? So, I mean, I'm sure I guess I'm yeah. showing my naivete. Is this for downloadable software where we're at now or is this for a service that they provide on their website? So they actually have two different models. Um, so they have the open source platform, uh, which I believe we can find information about this somewhere. Um, I thought, wait, is GitLab not open? No, GitLab is not open source, right? Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it, it is open source. Yeah, it's supposed to be open source. Um, so they have, but the I guess only a part of the system is open source, right? Um, so they have a community edition that's open source, and then beyond that, you can and you can self-host that and do whatever you want with it. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So community edition type mm -hmm. thing. Okay. 
Yep. Oh, I see. There's a little yep. radio button. Okay. If you, hey, if you scroll up where you're at, there you go. Right below where it says Dev DevSecOps platform. Dev the Seco header oh, of the page. Yeah. There, you can click between GitLab.com, self-managed, or dedicated. And I'm presumably the prices would change. Yep. Based yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. You know, so they have sort of a similar... Hmm, interesting. So this is actually single-tenant SaaS fully managed by them. So it's kind of... Yeah, that's the, essentially that the enterprise... Problem. It's the enterprise offering. Where they run a you run a copy of it dedicated to them. I think in this case they actually run it though, right? Yeah, well, they, yeah, they manage it, but it, yeah. it presumably is running on a, some machines in the customer's environment. Mm -hmm. That's how I would interpret it. Okay. Yeah, but I don't maybe know. Maybe that's what it is. A thousand seat commitment, right? So this is kind of that same thing where we're talking. Yeah, it's about... the enterprise. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the self-managed, what is that? Uh, self-managed installing on your own setup requires Linux experience. So yeah, okay, so it does, but you're still paying per month for it. So yep. That's yep. Huh, okay. I guess so. Um, interesting. Yeah. So I guess kind of the big thing here is people aren't, you know, there actually aren't that many things like what once is doing and well that's there that's you know they they right. like pivoting and saying all right what does everyone else do let's do something different i mean because right. they were the ogs of software as a service like they came out with Basecamp right. mm -hmm. super super early software as a service and now they're like okay let's go this way <laughs> yeah yeah i wonder one of the things that i'm a little bit worried about is i figure this is something that a lot of companies would almost never be able to do, right? Because I think software as a service is so lucrative. And a lot of the VCs and other investors um, are more interested kind of with that, with how big the number, the sales number is. Even yeah, kind yeah. Of the, yeah. So it'll and, be interesting you know, to see if this gets adopted much. It all depends on if customers are interested in, in doing it. So that's kind of goes back to what I was saying. I think there are certain markets that people would be amenable to this, like maybe more technical markets. Yeah. Like, for example, I have a software as a service that does online giving and event registration for nonprofits. I can't imagine a nonprofit wanting to do more IT work or hiring people to do IT work or a fundraising fundraising office wanting to hire more IT people. They said, no, no, you my assumption mm -hmm. working in this market is that, no, 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 you deal with it. So I think this model will be very hard to do for, yeah, I think SaaS works better for that. However, if you're talking about some sort of networking software or like imagine um, what is it like Detectify is a security solution that it does penetration testing and application security testing. And it's a software as a service app, I think. Well, imagine some other company builds one that's, hey, one price, one fee, and we package this for you and you can run it yourself on your own systems. I could manage, excuse me, I can imagine 
someone in an IT department saying, oh, heck yeah, I'll do that and save, you know, thousands of dollars a year, yep. run it myself and do my own systems. Yeah. One of so my... I think the model, I think this model works in certain situations, but maybe not others. That's yeah, my assumption, sure. but I don't know. We'll have to see. That's the thing. great thing about competition is that, hey, people try it and they'll see what happens. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and it's good to not be the first one to try it usually um, since... Well, yeah, I was just saying, yeah. So, but I am thinking about, you know, said use case of from a technical perspective of doing a product like this. So I'm considering doing a product kind of jumping on this this once.com bandwagon. So what's pretty interesting is this is actually not too dissimilar from how a lot of industrial software is, where you pay one time, right? And you might there might be a, a service, annual service license or something. I think if I'm going to do it, I would definitely do some sort of a maintenance fee or whatnot. And right, just, right. you know, and... Mm -hmm. You'll, you'll get upgrades for, and typically, you know, because even when, you know, you bought the software, if you wanted to get updates to the software, you had to get a maintenance contract that was typically, I don't can't remember, it's like 20, 25% of the total cost of the license, maybe. So historically, mm -hmm. that's what I remember, um, you know, because we, every year we were paying to the vendor of our, like when I used to work for a nonprofit, we were paying, you know, 15, 20, 25%, I can't remember what it was, annual fee to the uh, the fundraising system vendor we used for to get the updates. Right. Yeah. So one and of that's, the... So, and that's pretty typical of industrial application, software applications, you're saying? Yeah, because a lot of these factories don't want any anything, any data going outside of their factory so yep. what they do is they'll have like a local you know local network and yep. it will be you know disconnected basically from the outside world and they'll have on-premise servers and they'll purchase software that runs on these servers and on local machines and you know the assumption is that these things you almost don't want any updates because you kind of set it it'll once, mess up sure exactly you'll yep. mess things up <laughs> Um, there's a lot of cases actually with the windows automatic updates. Um, a lot of like the machines in industrial settings use windows and that has actually caused a lot of trouble for a lot of these fact, a lot of these factories where they have to disable that because it just totally messes them up. In some cases, the, you know, kernel updates or whatever actually can uh, render the software you know, non-functional. So you end yeah, up yeah. having to, yeah. Um, so it ends up becoming a huge cost because not only did your software stop running, but you're no longer producing your product. Um, you know, I think like one of the things I've heard is if you have like a software crash at, uh, and you provide uh, some critical software for a BMW car manufacturing, right? Um, if you stop it every minute that you stop it, is a $50,000 fine. So you really don't want to stop these things. And for that, you want to just set it once, make sure that's super solid, test it in every possible way you can, and then ship it and hope it never breaks, right? 
Um, and so in that case, it's very much this kind of thing where, you know, you have a fixed price and then you sell it to them. And usually in some cases, you actually do open the source code up to those customers so, so that they can actually, you know, do it. They want to understand in many cases, the, the underlying systems, and then, you know, you, you work from there. Um, so it is kind of interesting because there's, you know, that's a common model, but now there's a little bit of a trickle effect where some companies are doing, are saying, Hey, we can provide extra value if you actually let us host it on some server and we can get the data and we can make your, you know, system work better over time. And so there's kind of that trade-off and there's a little bit of give in some, some factories, you know, a lot of the big factories and, you know, like Apple or, uh, yeah, like Samsung's factories and things like that, you know, they, they're completely locked up a lot of the biggest companies, but there are some factories where they're kind of starting to open these things up. And what's even more interesting is, um, there's actually a big chunk of robots now that are under like a lease agreement. So you never actually purchase a robot. You instead lease a robot for three years or five years or something. And then after that three year lease is up, you know, they come in, the robotic robot company comes in and replaces them with new robots um, and takes away the old ones. And so it's, it's actually interesting because in this industrial setting, it's been lagging behind by, you know, 10 plus years in that sense. So it's actually similar to how it used to be still. Um, so it would be funny if, if a lot of the rest of the software world kind of flips back just as the industrial world is changing to this. So, Yeah, I don't know if this will be a, I don't know, a big thing that happens. I think, yeah, I think there's going to be small <clears throat> areas where it's beneficial. Like, But like even Campfire something that's a super simple chat i can't imagine someone like imagine let's say a flooring store you know a mom and pop flooring store that has to chat with someone person well mm -hmm. i guess you got to think of a reason to do that but would they but would some other business want to invest the time and oh i'm gonna go on DigitalOcean and get a server and install you know i don't see it whereas they can go to Slack or mm -hmm. some other, you know, just pay them, put in a credit card and, you know, they get start, they'll get started cheaper, easier, but per month they'll start that way. I, I still think that's yep. the way most software will go, but I think there might be a niche or a niche in the, someone who already has more technical skills mm -hmm. than offering software to them that they would use on a daily basis? So the other thing that's kind of interesting about that is how will that conflict directly with open source? Because open source already goes after that same market share, right? Where it's people who are a little bit more technical who can, you know, install things and manage things on their own a little bit. And the big selling point here is that, yeah, you know, it's backed by a, a, you know, bigger company and, you know, they, 
they have engineers to kind of make sure that things work well. And if you need to, you have the source code, but it'll be kind of interesting to see how this kind of model, you know, would it take away from some of the open source development that's going on where people will choose to do this kind of thing over the open source model. Or... And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, because... No, yeah, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it could. So maybe there would be slightly less open source because... Again, you hear of so many people doing open source and not getting paid. <laughs> yeah, no, for and sure. And if, if sure. there could be smaller companies offering services like this, that, you know, I could see that could be a win overall. Yeah, yeah. And then, but on the other hand, these guys are directly competing with a lot of the open source solutions out there, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and there are some people who are like, no, if it's not open source, I don't want to use it type thing then and and that's fine mm -hmm. but you know then you don't have you know there, I get, there's just all a myriad of models like some mm -hmm. open source there's no company one single company yep. backing it you right. need to find your own company that may support you if you mm -hmm. if you even want that support or so many of the software solutions available today you know there's they start open source or they open source the code mm -hmm. And then they start, you know, doing things that people don't like. There was the whole terraform kerfuffle. Mm. Well, they were, you know, I can't remember the specifics of it, but, you know, they do things that suddenly the community says, no, 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 wait, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think being in the open source software business is very, very tricky and very political, right? Yeah. So this kind of model keeps you out of that while still kind of keeping costs low enough to make it accessible and also kind of having some of the benefits of, you know, not necessarily needing to invest quite as much money into the product as you might with like a SaaS product. Um, yeah, that's the uh, other thing mm -hmm. that I like. I'm sorry, did, did I no, go ahead. you? So that's the other thing I like about this model is that you know, if you're starting a software as a, if you're starting a SaaS app, and if you're, you know, a one-man show, three-team show, four-team show, five-team show, there's, I think there's hesitancy for some larger organizations to start using your software because Fair. they're relying on you to operate the software. Are you going to be around in two years' time, five years' time, ten years' time, you know, something like that? And you could say that's the argument for this too, but with this model, you're not operating it. You're merely the software development firm. Right. And it's them who are operating it. Yep. It's so funny I think, though, because the same thing can happen with this kind of model, right? Um, so in I our mean, case- Yeah, you could yeah, go away and then you, know, you don't have anything, of course. Right, right, yeah. So, I mean, in many cases with those kinds of small startups, if a very large company is looking to work with them, they might request some sort of guarantee through like an escrow account or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Where if the company collapses, then they'll get access to the source code as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is interesting. So you mentioned earlier that this has led you to kind of think about whether you know you might actually want to start working on a product related or with using this kind of model right yeah yeah using the model yep 
Yeah. So, um, well, I'm not going to mention what the product is because I'm okay. still, you know, formulating yeah. uh, stuff. But yeah, so I would probably not use Rails because I don't, I don't, I guess I'm not quite comfortable yet with showing the source code type thing. Mm -hmm. And in terms of pricing models, like showing the source code would make it more difficult, I think, to if I want to do something like CPU limitations, like imagine the mm. software, I don't know if this, how well this works or not, or is it properly way to get around it, but I would kind of want to deliver a product that says, Hey, I want to put this on a four CPU server, eight CPU, because presumably you're getting more value. If you're installing if you're going to commit more money to put on a bigger server, you're getting more value out of the software for it. So, you know, that that's me. I would kind of want it like, tiered based upon how many CPUs on the server that you're installing it on or some form of use. Um, yeah. And therefore I would kind of want to go with a compiled language like Elixir probably, because mm -hmm. um, that's what I've used before uh, to build it. And then the other thing different from this is that um, I would kind of want to do more of a software maintenance thing again like an annual thing just to keep up to date with the latest um, and if a company wanted a source code i would throw another zero on the price or something like that i don't i don't right. know yet yep so. yeah we've done something similar where with you know one of our systems if you're willing to stick uh you know a little bit more than an extra zero but you know it's Okay, two uh, zeros. I don't know how yeah, many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, you know, pick your number, right? But um, where we we would actually release the source code in that case. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned also earlier that, uh, which is a great point, I think, that about how this there's certain niche uh, niches where this kind of model makes a ton of sense. Um, I you know I know you mentioned that you're not you, you don't really want to share exactly what the what the product that you have in mind is yet but i'm kind of curious what your thought process was in terms of how to find that right niche for this kind of model or was it the kind of thing where you already had this idea for a already long had time the idea you, yep mm -hmm. and already kind of planning how i would do it it would it was something that was going to follow up after the course is done so you know i was like this would be the next thing I was going to work on and I was formulating how I was going to do it. And I saw this, I was like, oh, this could work really well, you know, potentially. Yep. And it would differentiate me from others in the market because mm -hmm. now this model isn't used for what I had in mind. I see. Right. And the other big benefit that of this model is you alluded to it talking about the, um, the manufacturing, um, but owning your own data. So again, it's very hard for smaller SaaS companies if they want to do something for um, related to medical with all the HIPAA regulations, also related to um, a lot of European privacy laws, you know, or different laws saying, you know, your data cannot leave France or something like that. This model is great for that because, hey, you get the software, you install it where you want, put the data that you want, you can lock it down as much as you want, as opposed to 
building software as a service hubs and all these different locales or coming up with the HIPAA compliant version and, you know, this also, so that's, so that's another reason I was very interested in this. Yeah. This also kind of is tied very much to what the goals of your business are, right? Because if you're aiming for um, that unicorn status company, this might not be the right model for that, just because you won't necessarily be getting every cent from every customer that you necessarily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's so many businesses out there. And, you know, I think it makes a ton of sense that are just trying to, you know, have maybe a smaller team you know, one to 10 people and just kind of chug along and, and basically make enough to be comfortable and, and to have the flexibility and freedom to explore what you really want to do. And that, and this kind of model makes a lot more sense for that, uh, especially since you don't necessarily have that obli same obligation to customers to support it for the long period of time. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and the other thing you should mention is that, you know, uh, DHH of 37 Signals did mention that they've earned, I think it was 20, uh, 200, around $250,000 as of like two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So in a matter of, since it was released, and I don't know if it had been a month, or like four to six weeks or something. So, so, you know, not millions of dollars, but not, you know, nothing. Yeah, but it but equates are... to about about 800 license, you know, 800 licenses or so presumably that they sold. So, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, this is a unique case where they're a well-established. Oh, I, oh, I know. Company, I'm just right? saying so that mm -hmm. I'm just saying there is demand. It's not sure. that just, Hey, just, I'm the only guy that bought it type of, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. Um, and, I don't know, you know what, yeah. I don't know what they were expecting, but. Yeah. I mean, and actually, one of the things I'm very curious about is this, to me, very much feels like the kind of project that was, you know, internally people were, you know, maybe on like some Friday afternoons or something. Some of the engineers were, you know, writing, they writing some code, just say, hey, we really don't like, you know, I, Microsoft Teams, I absolutely hate, right? And, and you know, <laughs> Slack is pretty expensive. I do like Slack, but, you know, it's it's pretty expensive and um, things like that. So it very much kind of feels like the kind of project that they probably built internally for internal use. And then they said, oh, you know, if we polish it up a little bit, maybe we can, uh, maybe we can sell it and, you know, make a few bucks off of it. And that's, you know, that that's actually kind of an interesting idea for, that kind of product, right? You know, it's things that you build internally. Maybe you can release it under this kind of model um, and get a little bit of that development money back too. And they had already built Campfire 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they had shut it down just, I guess, to allow them to focus on Basecamp or they were like, it was a distraction to kind of what they were working on at the time. So they, it was a SaaS app and they shut it down. And then this is the resurgence of it or the reemergence of it. But how much of the code do you think is the same? Probably not, oh, I, right? There could be similarities. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fundamental, but I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, 
I'm sure they did entirely rework of it because they knew right, they were releasing right. it. So, you know, they wanted to demonstrate all the newest features and everything. But, mm -hmm. you know, essentially, it is a revamped, I would think, revamped version of the one that, mm -hmm. you know, they previously ran. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, I always kind of have a hard time remembering that 10 years ago or, you know, 15 years ago, these kinds of software already existed. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's when I think 10 years ago in the software world, I kind of imagine the, you know, Windows 95 days, but I realize now that I'm a couple decades off here. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. Whenever I think back, here's a sad story. Whenever I think back, mm -hmm. my think back time is from 2000. I don't know why 2000. Maybe it's just because it's a round number. But like I was watching a show last night and they said, um, you know, 50 years ago, I was like, 1950s? This doesn't look like the 1950s. I don't know. That's what my brain thought. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. This show was recorded in like 2018. So it was more like in the 70s or something. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder when was Base Camp? Yeah, so 2004, so 20 years ago is when Basecamp started. Okay. So. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. All right. So with that, I think, I think will we call this topic done? I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we talked a lot about the different models and the, you know, what makes us special. So it was very interesting. All right. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Please be, excuse me. Please be sure to click like and subscribe if you did. Also, be sure to visit the rubberduckdevshow.com where you can sign up to get notifications every time we send a show out and you'll also get links to the different topics that we discussed during the show. I hope everyone has a great week and until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.